Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Last week I started a, a series, just, um, just a brief series, that is a kind of a reiteration. It's a, a going back over things that we've covered many things that uh, many of you will have heard before. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we've entitled it The Mission of God. Um, I, I spoke in introducing it about the need to revisit key themes like this because of a phenomena that we call mission drift. Um, mission drift is the idea that you start with something clearly in your head, but over time, as a result of events and distractions and just the work of time, we, we find ourselves having moved away from it. It's what the writer to the Hebrews warned the Christians when he wrote to them, and he said, therefore, we must give earnest heed to the things that we've heard, lest we drift away. And I mentioned last week that we're afloat on great currents, both within and without, and unless as a people, individually and as a corporate faith community, we are intentional and reflective, we can easily drift from where we are supposed to be. Ancient Israel were very aware of that capacity and uh, tendency to drift, and they built into their calendar covenant renewal ceremonies. We might call them anti-drift events. And the purpose of those ceremonies was to remind the people of the story that they inhabited, what kind of story they were drawn into by God's grace and what kind of story they were supposed to live out by that same grace. These ceremonies were intended to remind them of who they were, their identity, what they were supposed to do, their mission, and how they were supposed to live, their ethics. Uh, I spoke about this whole idea of living in a story and uh, if, if story is difficult, if narrative is a difficult kind of concept for you to grasp, you can use the world, world view if you like. We live in a worldview and we're called to live it out. The reality is every single one of us are shaped by these worldview stories. And uh, I talked about it last week, I won't go over it again, but Ian Proven said so powerfully, there is no one who does not live inside a story. The only question is, are you gonna make an effort to ensure that you are governed by the right story rather than the wrong one? And I talked about the fact that in our 21st century Western world, the story is one of expressive individualism topped with a good topping of hedonism. So people say, basically, I'm master of my own fate. I get to choose my own individual story. I'm not subject to any other big stories. My personal happiness and my personal fulfillment is, is the goal. That's the story of Western individualism. Now, the Bible, which is God's story, is a massive challenge to our expressive individualism. I talked last week about the fact that the Bible is not just a collection of isolated, disconnected stories, some of which are quite weird, with poems and songs and prophecies and rules all thrown into the pot. The Bible is a meta-narrative. It is a story that claims to provide the answers for the questions that all reflective human beings ask at some stage in their life. Questions like, where did I come from? What's wrong with the world? Intuitively, we are aware something is broken. How can it be fixed? Where are we headed? Who am I? 
this issue of identity. Why am I here, this issue of mission? How am I supposed to live, the issue of ethics? And the goal of this brief series is to remind us of the big story, where we fit into it, and to help us lift, uh, live, live out of that story. So in a sense, this brief series is an anti-drift series. It's to remind us of these things. So with that in mind, let's look again at this big story. And I mentioned again last week how uh, some people have likened it to a five-act play. <clears throat> now, you can, you can change the analogy if that one doesn't work for you, but, but uh, it's, it's quite a good way of actually looking at the Scripture. And what I want to do in the remainder of the time that we have together both this morning and then over the next two weeks, is to work our way through some of these acts. Now, we won't be able to look at them all in detail. Each one of the acts deserves a series of sermons. We don't have that kind of time. Act one of this play is, if you like, creation. We inhabit an earth which is part of God's good creation, the creation of the one living and personal God. And the Bible tells us, this story tells us that we are human beings made in the image of God and that we are designed to act as his stewards in the world. And he gives us real agency and real responsibility as we live in this world. And that act is outlined in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Act two is the fall. Something's gone wrong. It answers the question that everybody says, what's wrong with the world? The first couple that God created turned away from God, rebelling against his word, rejecting his, uh, the relationship that he offered them, and they sought to establish their own personal individual authority. They distrusted his benevolence. They disobeyed his authority. They disregarded his boundaries, boundaries that had been established to guard their freedom. And that act runs, act two runs from Genesis chapter three through Genesis chapter 11. And as you read those chapters, you can see the incredible downward trajectory from that first failure of that first couple. Things go rapidly downhill. In, 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 in Genesis 4, Cain murders Abel. In Genesis 4:23, we have the story of Lamech, who is both polygamous and vengeful. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, you have one of those really strange stories where the line between heaven and earth gets blurred and heavenly creatures and earthly ones have a, some kind of sexual liaison. The result is the sons of God, giants, men of renown in the earth. Now, don't ask me to explain it. The Bible just says there's something going on that is desperately wrong. The downward trajectory of those chapters is halted briefly by Noah's flood, but once that's over, it picks up rapidly again and ends in Genesis chapter 11 with men making a city, the city of Babel, seeking to make a name for themselves. And it's at that point that God intervenes, confuses their languages and scatters them across the earth. So Act 1 and Act 2. Act three is the call of Abraham and the election of Israel. This act runs from Genesis chapter 12, or Genesis 11, the last couple of verses, right through to Malachi chapter four. And it marks the beginning of God's cosmic rescue plan. God does something that only he could have thought of. He chooses an elderly, childish couple from the midst of the land of Babel, and he makes them the fountainhead, the launch pan, pad for this rescue mission. And this is the beginning of what we call the Missio Dei, the mission of God. 
Bishop N.T. Wright says, the story of Israel starting with Abraham himself had always been the start of a rescue operation, the beginning of a long purpose to put humans right, and so in the end, to put the whole earth right again. Let me just read the initial call of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, because there's a couple of enduring principles I want to draw out of it. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and your, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haram. The first thing I want to highlight from this call of God to Abraham and thereby to his descendants was that it was unconditional in the sense that it did not depend on any prior conditions that Abraham had fulfilled or any righteousness that he had attained. Actually, Joshua chapter 24 verses 2 and 3 plainly tell us that Abram was an idolater in an idolatrous culture. And God's choice of Abram and Sarah emerged out of an absolutely unexpected, unmerited mercy and grace on his part. That, by the way, is reiterated when we are looking at the election of Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, where Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy 7, God wasn't attracted to you and didn't choose you because you were big and important. The fact is there was almost nothing to you. He did it out of sheer love. And God's choice of you and I has nothing to do with what we might imagine we could possibly offer God. It emerges purely out of his mercy and grace. It has nothing to do with our achievements or our righteousness. That's why Paul, when writing to Titus, says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So the first thing is this call of God is absolutely unconditional. The second thing is that God's call to Abram implies conditionality on Abram's part. The part where God says to Abraham, get up and go in the Hebrew language, indicates the need for decisive action on Abram's part. It's, it's if you will leave, then I will bless you. So Abram is called to respond to God's draw him, drawing. Abram has to relinquish all the ties that bind him. Leave your father's house, leave your land. He has to leave before God's promise to bless him and then through him to bless the world before it can occur. So Babel, as you'll remember from the last Acts, is the absolute climax of the problem. From Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11, it's the source of the problem, so it will not be the source of the solution going forward. The people of Babel had sought to, uh, to make a name and, and to achieve renown for themselves out of their arrogance and their independence, and God scatters them. And then God says to Abram, if you will leave, I will bless you and I will make you a name. So the true renown that people seek in their arrogance and their, uh, and their rebellion actually comes as a gift of, of grace. If we will respond, God will give, in this case, Abram a great name. So the people of Babel attempt to take by force that which God actually offers by grace. And there's not a better definition of sin than that. When we sin, we attempt to take by force the things that actually 
God offers us in grace. In our arrogance and our rebellion, we grab for it. And God says, it will slip through your hands like mercury. But if you will respond to me, the things that you actually are longing for and seeking for in that grasp comes by grace. That's a revelation, I think, to you and I. God calls us unconditionally, but we have to respond to that call. So God, Jesus, walks by Matthew, sees him at his tax collector's desk and says, come, follow me. And Matthew has a choice. He walks by Peter and, and, and James and John as the fishermen and says, come, follow me. By the, by the way, when you first read that, it seems in some Gospels as if that's the very first time they actually meet Jesus. It's like he walks by this complete stranger and says to them, come, follow me. And they go, okay. <laughs> you know, you think, why would they go off with a complete stranger? But what you realize when you read John's Gospel is the first five chapters of John's Gospel happened before that call. So the healing of the nobleman's son, um, the casting out of the people from the temple, a whole lot of things that happened in John chapter 5, uh, 1 through 5, have happened before Jesus walks by Peter and his friends and says, come, follow me. And they go, you're on. We've seen what you can do, and we're coming. So God doesn't ask us to follow in blind loyalty, but he does win and woo our hearts, and then says, come, follow me. And they leave their nets and follow. And you and I are called to lay down our lives, take up the cross, and to follow. That's, by the way, the unconditional, conditional, it's the tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Now, there's another principle in the call of Abraham that's worth pointing out as well, and it's the tension between uh, universality and particularity. Big words, but let me explain them. We have the universality of the goal. God is looking to bless all of the nations. That's the universal part of this call. The particular part of the call is the means by which he intends to do that, and that's Abraham and his descendants. So you have the universality of the goal, the particularity of the means. God chooses the one to reach and bless the many. God's choice of Israel, uh, Abraham's descendants, amounts to a very, very thorny theological issue, and it's the issue of election. Election, by the way, is another term that just is used to describe God's choice. It has nothing to do with democracy and voting and parties, all right? Election is simply God's choice of the particular, ultimately to reach the universal. The issue is thorny because I think over the years it's become much misunderstood. And I want to just take a couple of moments, if you wouldn't mind, to unpack it, because although it's theological, it actually has massive pastoral and personal implications. So see if you can stay with me just for a couple of minutes, okay? Turn off your Facebook and focus in. <laughs> Election is related to missiology, not soteriology. You say, Don, you've lost me already. <laughs> could, you, could you please speak English? All right. It has to do with mission and not salvation. Election is all about serving God's mission, and it's instrumental, it's not an end in itself, it's always to reach the universal. Let me, if I can, illustrate this. I've used this illustration before, so forgive the redundancy. But when I was a school teacher, uh, way back when the world was black and white, um, 
At the end of term, I would always elect one child. I'd call one person out. Miriam, come here a minute. I'd give them some money. I'd say, I want you to go down to the dairy, supermarket, and I want you to buy this many ice blocks. And off they would go. I chose the one in an attempt to bless the to bless the classroom. It didn't say anything about that particular person, their goodness, their righteousness, their anything else. All I was after in election was a mission to serve the many. Since the Reformation, okay, way back in the days of Luther and Calvin and co., it seems to me that we have moved the concept of election off of service and onto salvation. So when you talk in many circles these days about election, you are generally not talking about mission and service, but you are talking about God's predestined choice of people to be saved or lost. So that's why it's a thorny issue. So John Calvin said this, and I quote, God ordained or elected from eternity those that he wills to embrace in love and those upon whom he wills to vent his wrath. Before the foundation of the world, according to Reformed theology, God decrees, ordains, elect, whichever word you want to use, some to be saved, and they are called the elect, and some to be lost. They are called the reprobate. So according to this theology, some people are unconditionally predestined to be saved, and some are unconditionally predestined to hell. And you say, Don, you're not serious. Surely they, people don't believe this, do they? Actually, it's very, very common. This is Reformed theology. And by the way, in case you're thinking, oh, I've heard only a small people, group of people would believe that stuff. No, it's probably the predominant form of Protestant Christianity in our Western world today. Let me quote. Two Calvinist Reformed authors. While God commands all to repent and takes no delight in the death of sinners, all are not saved because it is not God's intention to give his redeeming grace to all. Now, I don't have time to unpack this, and I suspect you probably don't have a heart to listen to it too much anyway, but it is Reformed theology. And I want to tell you, a good many good, godly men and women espouse this position as the orthodox one. In fact, as I say, I might go further and suggest it's perhaps the prominent view among Protestant scholars. John Calvin, of course. Other well-known names like Jonathan Edwards, R.C. Sproul, D.A. Carson, John, uh, John Piper, Tim Keller. They all come from this Reformed school and essentially espouse Reformed theology. Now, obviously, these men and women wouldn't be in that corner without significant scriptural weight. Okay, there's, there's something to be said for what just seemed to you to be outrageous. I'd like to suggest to you it's not the only way to see Scripture, and in my very humble opinion, it's not the best way either. In fact, Reformed theology raises for me questions that make my head spin. And as much as Reformed theologians try to soften the unpalatable truth of God predestining some people to hell, to say that some are elect before the foundation of the world is to say some are not. Up implies down, back implies front, wet implies dry, later implies earlier, and chosen implies unchosen. And to suggest that God created a good portion of people so that he could damn them, 
to display the full-orbed glory of his character, in my view, besmirches God's character. And I, and I, I, pardon the pun, but if that's good, what the hell is bad? What of the scriptures that plainly tell us that God loves the whole world and the people in it and wants them all to be saved? Now, from a Reformed perspective, and John Piper comments, he does love all, but not in the same way. That amounts, in my view, to verbal legitimate, verbal sleight of hand. And I'm not sure how one predestined to reprobation would interpret that kind of love. To quote John Wesley, who was not a Calvinist, said, Is not such a love, does not such a love make your heart or your blood run cold? What about the scriptures that tell us Christ has been set forth as a propitiation for the whole world? 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, uh, not only for ours only, but also for the whole world. Well, reformed theology, reform theology has to say, well, not quite all the world. Actually, it's the elect. John 3.16, Matthew, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 3, all of which say God wants the whole world to be saved. It's not quite true. He wants the elect. So what you come to there is something called limited atonement, by which Reformed theologians mean Christ's sacrifice was sufficient value to save all, but for some mysterious reason God has predestined only the elect to benefit. Now, I'm, if you're of the Reformed persuasion, and there's probably many here who are, I realise that what I just said is a straw man, okay? I don't have the time and you don't have the heart to unpack all of this, and there are books that I could stack from here to the roof that, that argue backwards and forwards over all this. I, I, I acknowledge that it's an inadequate summary of the reform position, but what I'm trying to say is I don't think that's what elect I don't think that's what election is about. I think we've got off base. And I love what Christopher Wright says when he says, if we allow the doctrine of election to become merely a secret calculus that determines who gets saved and who doesn't, then we've lost touch with its original intention. Election is not about predetermining some to be saved and some to be lost. Election is instrumental, it's missional, it's I choose you to go down and get the ice blocks to come back so that I can bless the whole classroom. And when God chooses, when God elects, more often than not in the scriptures, A, it's corporate and B, it's, intent, it's instrumental. It's not about salvation. It's not about predestining some to be saved and some to be lost. Now, God's originally chosen people, the people of Israel, the election of Israel became very quickly misunderstood by them. And they thought because they'd been chosen, they were really, really special. And what they did is they went off, got the ice blocks, went behind the bike shed and ate them all by themselves. That's exactly what they did. They thought, we are the chosen, you're the Gentile dogs. It's about us and us alone. So in Hosea chapter 10 verse 1, it says, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit unto himself. So God elects Abraham and his descendants to be the rescue mission for the world. But before we are very far into Act 3, Abraham's family needs rescuing. They are afflicted by the very same sinful tendencies that they have been elected to deal with. 
and to try and bring healing to. So the Abram project, the Israel vocation, reaches a point where it needs rescuing and the lifeboat itself has been smashed upon the rocks. And that's the whole story of the Old Testament. So where to now? Where do we go for help? How does God's plan go forward? Where's this descendant of Abraham that is gonna be a blessing to all the world? Well, the whole Old Testament story, the whole of Act 3 can be seen as God's search for a faithful Israelite through whom he would be able to fulfill the promise to Abraham to bless the nations, and he couldn't find one. His corporate son, Israel, is wrecked on the rocks, the same as the people that they're going to rescue. So in the fullness of time, the Bible says, he sent forth his only beloved son to be that Israelite to be that faithful Israelite. And so we come to the end of Act, uh, of Act 3 in our play. Act 4 in our play is the, is the dramatic, climactic fulfillment of everything that leads up to this point, and it's the lynch point of everything that goes forward. It's the story of Jesus coming to be the faithful Israelite, the descendant of Abraham who would rescue the world, the particular that would bless the universal. David Holweda says, he is the representative embodiment of Israel through whom the nations will be blessed. And as Jesus comes, he embodies the identity and the mission and lives the life that Israel were called to but miserably failed in. So when Jesus says in John chapter 9 verse 5, I am the light of the world, there is much more in this than Jesus simply saying, hey, where there's darkness, I bring light. He's, that's, I mean, that's true, but that's not what he's saying. What he's doing there is assuming Israel's vocation to be a light to the nations. That was their calling. That was their mission. Israel was supposed to be the people who would be a light to guide the nations unto me. It says that in Isaiah 49 verse 6. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 9, he said, You are confident, Paul says to the Jewish people, that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. That was their mission. I choose you to be a light to them, instrumental election so that they will be blessed. You will be the light. I will shine my light through you. They failed. And Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world. He's embracing the mission of the failed corporate son Israel. And then when he says in John chapter 15, verse one, I am the true vine. Have you ever wondered why he said true? Why didn't he just say, look, look, here's an analogy. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Now, again, that's true, but that's not what he was saying, essentially, although it's included. He's saying, I'm the true vine. He says, I'm the true vine because he's deliberately tapping into Israel's story. This is their identity. The vine is a symbol of Israel throughout the Old Testament. I just read that passage in Hosea. They were a vine, but they brought forth fruit to themselves. Look at Isaiah 5, Psalm 80, Jeremiah 2. In all of those passages, Israel is likened to the vine, but they turn out to be a false one. Their identity is crashed and crushed in their own broken sinfulness. And so Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine. That identity I take upon myself. That mission I take upon myself. 
They failed in their calling and vocation. He came and was what they refused to be and did what they were unable to do. He was the true Israelite, the light of the world, the true vine. He's promised Abraham's seed. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he opens the door of God's grace for blessing to flow to the nations. That was the plan right from the beginning. And the particular comes to open the door to the universal. Now, it's really important to understand that this is a continuous story. Jesus is not starting a new, unrelated story. He comes as the consummation of the story. When we say Jesus Christ, when we talk about Jesus the Christ, many people think, oh, Christ is kind of like a surname. Jesus and his surname is Christ. It's not. It's Jesus Messiah. It's the, it's the Greek word for Messiah. It's the fulfillment of all of the promises right through starting from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when you know, God says to Eve, there'll be one who'll come from you who will bruise the, Satan's head and he will bruise right through. So Jesus is Messiah. He's not starting a new story. He's the climax of it to this point and the pivot point of it going forward. But it's here that a lot of Christians step into the play. They've, they've missed the first three acts and they come in in act four and, and try and pick it up. So it's like stepping into King Lear or Macbeth in Act chapter four and wondering what on earth is going on? I don't understand the plot or the character development. But a lot of people do that. They, they ignore the Old Testament as if it's now unrelated and Jesus has started a new story. Jesus did not finish with Judaism as that, in, in that sense and start a new religion called Christianity. And I think a lot of Christians think that the Old Testament story is about Jewish people and, and a whole lot of strange rules that absolutely have nothing to do with us. And in Jesus, we have a radical break that renders all that's gone before redundant. That's why, by the way, some people rarely, if ever, read the, New, the Old Testament and why some Christian leaders, credible Christian leaders in our present culture are saying, don't worry about the Old Testament. Absolutely unhitch your faith from the Old Testament. From their perspective, the Old Testament is kind of interesting in places, but it really doesn't relate to us any longer and that we are now in a different story. And that story was kind of weird in places anyway. It's embarrassing. You know, slavery, patriarchy, weird food laws, animal sacrifices, and all kinds of unmentionable rich, rituals. And when people like Richard Dawkins say the Bible is criminally weird, they're always referring to that part of the story anyway. Why don't we just unhitch our faith from it? That story is another story, and Jesus is finished with all that stuff. He started a new religion called Christianity. And then Paul comes along after a radical conversion on the Damascus Road, and he breaks off that old Jewish story, and now we're in a new one. Look, while it's superficially true, of course, in the light of history that Christianity has become a separate religion from Orthodox Judaism, and it's true that some of the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices aren't part of the ongoing story, neither Jesus nor Paul had any intention of starting a new religion or a new story. They see the story continuing. When Matthew begins Acts 4, the Act 4, with a long genealogy, he relates Jesus back to Abraham. Now, why does he do that at the start of that story? Because he's saying, hey, this is not a break. This is the continuation of the story. This is Abraham's seed. 
You, if you don't understand this part of the story, then from here on, won't make any sense to you. You'll be trying to pick up King Lear's characters without any sense of what's going on in the preceding part of the story. We often see Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus as a radical break from the Jewish story. When we talk about conversion, we often use it in terms of such a radical change. He got converted from Islam or he got converted from paganism and that whole story is now finished and gone. Paul didn't see what had happened to him as a conversion in that sense. It wasn't a paradigm shift out of one story into a completely different story. Paul did not leave behind the Jewish story. He didn't uh, he didn't cut off Jewish thinking. He didn't become anti-Jewish. He understood that the story was continuing, but now was radically different than what he had imagined. So it's not a change of the story. It's just, wow, that story took a twist I wasn't expecting. But like a murder mystery or you know, a movie, you go, wow, I was not expecting that. That's the, a twist in the story, but it's not a change in the story. If you study Paul's writings, it's clear that that's not an accurate portrayal of his thinking. His conversion experience didn't have the effect of making him reject the Jewish story and invent a new religion and a new story. He did not sweep the Jewish map off the table. He said, oh my goodness, this is the fulfillment of all that. We weren't expecting it, but this is what has happened. Paul didn't stop being Jewish or a Jewish thinker. In fact, he remained deeply a Jewish theologian who in the light of his encounter with Messiah, with the Christ, and with subsequently the Holy Spirit, rethought and reworked that native Jewish theology. And it's the New Testament as we have it. In the New Testament, by the way, Paul states very, very clearly that we are now being engrafted into that story. In, in Romans chapter 11, it's the story of the olive tree. And some branches have been broken off and you have been grafted in. And he says, don't get all up, uppity about it. It's the roots that sustain you, not you them. You haven't been cut off from the Jewish story. You have been engrafted into it. Again, theologically, people get all uptight. You know, are you talking about the church replacing Israel and, get all, you know, and on and on and on it goes. Read Romans 11. The church doesn't replace Israel, it's engrafted into its story, and we are now the people of God called the new Israel of God. And, and it might be hard to get your head around, but, but this is the twist in the story. The particular blesses the universal, the universal are drawn into that one story. Now, look, I know for many of you this is kind of, okay, Donna, we've heard this a hundred times before. It's anti-drift. It's an anti-drift story. It's remember the story that you are called to be part of. It has to do with your identity. It has to do with your mission. It has to do with the way you live your lives. This is not abstract theology. This has to do with how we live at our story in shoes. Wherever you are, whoever you are, wherever you go. It's up on the back. Whoever you are, wherever you go, we are called to remember our story who we are, how we live, what we're called to do. And when we drift from it, we are simply caught in the currents of our, our present um, cultural currents. And they are strong. And as I said last week, a lot of Christians, really, rather than being 
drawn into this story simply try and draw Jesus into their story. So he now becomes the means by which I can be fulfilled and happy. Oh, he'll do it for me. I couldn't do it by myself, but now he will be that for me. I'm sorry, but you can't draw him into your story. You're called to live in his. And that's a radical challenge to our expressive individualism. And you talk to many Christians, you know, and um, their personal fulfillment and their personal happiness is still top of the tree. And I've said this numerous times before, but you ask any parent what they want for their child, and nine times out of ten they'll say, I want them to be happy. Well, I don't want my kids and grandkids to be unhappy either, but I hope there's more in it than that. I hope that they see a bigger story than simply, oh, my, my desire to be happy and have a peaceful life. We're called into the story so we know who we are, what we're supposed to do, and how we're supposed to live. And the next two parts will be concentrating on Act 5, which is from Acts chapter 1 through to February 2023. We're in that story. How's it affecting you? What does it look like, what does it look like in your shoes, in your home, in the place where you live? How do we live this story out well and faithfully? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.